Welcome back to the Sharon Fitzmaurice podcast, episode 76. And again, we have a wonderful guest with us this week, Dr. Lisa Turner. Lisa's story is one of many people in the world. And as I spoke to Lisa briefly before we pressed record, it's talking about how important it is to voice our stories, to help others to know that they are not alone and that there are others out there and that we have sought help and that it is okay. You know, for me, it's about empowering each other and knowing that you don't always have to stay a victim, that you can empower yourself by taking that first step and looking for support. So Lisa's story is amazing in the fact that she broke free from the grips of a sexual abuser to reclaim her life mentally, emotionally and spiritually. And because of this, and this is the part I love the most, this triggered a process of research that Lisa took on finding the very best in transformational therapies, which led Lisa to create a powerful healing technology called Conscious Emotional Transformation and it unites science and spirituality. Lisa has a background in mathematic modeling and aeroacoustics, which I know nothing about, and maybe Lisa will inform us all what that is. And she's transitioned from scientist to spiritual teacher, now a trauma expert. She's sharing through her books, through her speaking, through her TikToks, which that's where I discovered Lisa. I love it. And she's going to share with us today. So, Lisa, you are so very welcome. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely delighted. And just to put you all in the comfort zone, Mathematical modeling about aeroacoustics, it's just some slightly tricky sums about noisy fans. There we are. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? You know, that's one of the things I always talk about with labels, you know, and how they look so out there. And we're like, what is that? I'd never be able to understand that. But when you describe it so simply, it's like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense now. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, Lisa. So we'll go back before we go forward, as we always do in our lives. You were born and raised in Australia, Lisa, is that correct? I was actually born in the UK, but I was raised in Australia. My parents emigrated when I was only two, so I had no memory of the, well, vague memory of the UK. One of my earliest memories is being on the plane. I guess it was a significant one, but I don't think that's particularly relevant to my story. But um, but all of my formative years were in Australia. Yeah. Wow. So growing up in Australia as a typical child, you know, what was your childhood like, you know, and your parents and all of those things that, you know, that form us as children you know and leading up to adulthood what would you say you were like as a child Lisa? I think I was a fairly typical Gen Xer so my parents were they were loving and they were ambitious I didn't have a particularly unusual childhood I think is um you know from other people in my age group yeah there were you know I was a latchkey kid for a while and uh, my parents were both um, uh, entrepreneurs. They, uh, my dad, set up a business, uh, also doing um, computer modeling of plastics. <laughs> yeah. So um, probably I don't know runs in the blood or something. Um, so my childhood was like it was happy, it was joyful, mm-hmm. it was fun. I had an elder brother. I had friends. I went to you know the local school. There wasn't a lot of childhood drama, and that's actually one of the misconceptions about. Mm-hmm 
how grooming happens, the idea that, oh, it's the vulnerable children we've got to look out for. And actually, sometimes it's the opposite. In fact, I don't know if you saw in one of my um, recent TikToks, I was doing the four stages of grooming. And I said, um, you know, there's this myth that it's the it's the vulnerable kids. But actually, often it's the happy, uh, well, well-rounded, you know, kids who are well cared for mm-hmm. because they actually grow up thinking adults are good. And so they have this intrinsic, every adult I knew uh, was trustworthy. Why would I suddenly have any alarm bells about this one particular person? That's a really, really good point and something I'm glad that you said, because there is, you know, a misconception that it is vulnerable children or children that come from maybe a broken home or poverty and they're looking for somebody to save them or rescue them or to love them. And in fact, yours was completely opposite to that. So that's a a lovely story, you know, to base your the next part of your story going forward. So you were this well-rounded child and it was in your teenage years then that somebody started getting your attention. Tell us about this, Lisa. Yeah, so I first met him. I love to sing. I love music. I was in the school choir. I actually first, the first time I ever saw him, uh, we'd normally had the the choir practice was just, you know, the a, a pianist. And I, I shouldn't be, that sounds very dismissive, but there was a pianist and that was all there was. And then this one day without any notice, there was a whole band. There was um, a uh, somebody playing the bass, somebody playing the electric guitar, somebody, you know, on the drums. And it was this, you know, rock, you know, rock band. And it was for a rock opera that we were putting on. Um, the school production. So the first time I ever saw him was playing the electric guitar in the band. And I remember, you know, me singing in the choir. And um, I don't think I had a solo at that, um, in that particular production. But somehow, I caught his eye, he caught my eye, whatever. And at this time, I was 12. So that's, that was the age, that was the first time I met him. He, I then had, uh, I was already having guitar lessons. He became the new guitar teacher, started having guitar lessons for him. And then for some reason, I, I, this is, you know, people often ask me this question, like, what was it that had him pick you? And I actually don't know that he picked me. Mm. And in, in my, um, in my various books, I talk about the four stages of grooming and the first stage is luring where they, I think they just cast the net out and, and and they just see who nibbles, you know, it's like they just, you know, see, oh, who, who bites, who mm-hmm. takes the bait. Yes. And he gave me his phone number and I took it and started phoning him. What age was he, Lisa, at the time? He would have been 26, 27, something like that. Mm. And at any stage, did alarm bells ring for you then in him giving you the phone number? No. Were you kind of intrigued or a little bit flattered by this older teacher? You know, 26 is not old, but when you're 12, 13 and 14, it's amazing for somebody older to even notice you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a huge, huge part of it. That's uh that's often how the, the the process goes. And that's one of the things that they they use to hook you in, because one of the, the next stages of, of grooming is enchantment. Mm. And part of that is this flattery, which does start at the luring. It's like, wow, who am I that he's given me his mm. phone number to? And um, it's it's all my whole story is if you're interested, if anyone's interested in this book, which is currently being adapted for screen. So that's I Loved a Pedophile, which I know is an edgy title. Um, but uh, so it was unbelievably flattering. And then he started to do 
you know, the um, you're so special, you're so magical, you know, you're so amazing. And of course, what 12, 13 year old to an older, mm. you know, with, you know, with an, with an older, as you say, you know, seems so much older than me. He's a proper grown up. Yes. <laughs> He's interested in me. Wow. This must be something special. Mm. And um, one of the things they start to do here is in this enchantment, it's just like total love bombing. And and that just continued for a while. And I started then to have private lessons with him rather than just the small group lessons. Then I had private lessons at his house. Um, and I kind of forget the transition for that kind of a, I think there was something along the lines of, you know, Lisa's so special. She needs special, you know, so talented. She needs my special attention. And one of the things that one of the common questions is like, what were your parents thinking? Why didn't they do that? I was like, actually, they were groomed as much as as I was because you know any parent out there will have this notion of your child is special and talented and if a you know the music teacher tells you how what the amazing talent your child has but they need to nurture it that's you know that's a big hook to that kind of gets you know gets the parents on you know to you know on board to trust that the situation is just fine and dandy Absolutely. I so agree with you. Because again, when the teacher comes and says, oh, yes, your child is a special talent, every parent is like, oh, wow, really? Oh, my God, we must put them out there and do more. And yes, the private lessons. What were your friends saying? Or were you telling your friends, Lisa, when you were that age that this teacher was giving you private lessons and had given you his phone number and was love bombing you? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have used that expression then that he was love bombing me. But um, but uh, so most of my friends I didn't tell, and that was kind of part of that was actually part of the the charm, if you like, the magic of this. This was our special secret. Mm. Um, so so there was that, and I did have a couple of you know girls who always have our best friends, right? And my besties I did tell, and they were like, "Wow, you know," like, and they were you know, it's like the kudos that I got from my friends was almost as as um you know kind of enchanting if you like and that, you know this this is the, the enchantment stage it was almost as enchanting as the 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 love bombing that I got from him yes they were looking at you thinking you were so cool that the older teacher he's so cool and he likes you yeah yeah and again I come back was there any alarm bells even at that stage then even with the private lessons you know nothing like that for you it just seemed natural yeah, just seem well. I won't say it seemed natural. It seemed special, mm. and I think I think kids have a very different perspective of like, you know, what what would cause alarm bells. And I think you know, I being a very trusting, mm. you know, I'd grown up in a very loving family. We were a very open family, very liberal, um, and the school was, you know, it was a kind of Christian loving school and the mm. motto was all about, you know, growing and caring. And, and, you know, so it was like, it, as far as I was concerned, this was just extra special caring and love. Yeah. And just on that now, and I'm sure there's many parents listening and <laughs> they might be just going, oh my God, my child is getting private lessons, you know, what, whatever it is. How do you respond to parents when say, well, now I'm in fear of sending my child anywhere with an adult, you know, even if I know that adult really well or, you know, what would you say to parents? Oh, that's a, I mean, it depends a lot on the situation and the, and, and who the parent is, but 
I would just look at, I would actually, the thing I would say is keep the dialogue open with your child. Keep the dialogue open. And I have quite an unusual perspective in that. I don't necessarily think that all relationships with adults and kids, I mean, I'm not saying sexual relationships, be clear about that, but I'm not, you know, when, like when a child has a relationship with another adult that's outside of their family, it can absolutely be 100% wholesome. Mm. And I don't want us ever to blanket ban that because actually, you know, there's this whole, it takes a village to raise a kid, you know, thing. And I like, that is so true. And I think it just puts more burden on parents if they have no other adult that they can rely on. So, but I think it's about keeping the dialogue open and discussing things with the kid. And I think actually the more we protect children, actually the more we potentially, not necessarily, but potentially endanger them. Because if a child is protected from like the whole concept of sex and sexuality when it comes along and they, they're completely unprepared for any, they have no frame of reference for what is okay and what is not okay. Mm. What and advice I, would you now as you're, very well educated and you know very knowledgeable Lisa say to that young Lisa if you had the opportunity now if you were the adult looking on and notice this relationship you know what would you say to her and do you think she would listen I think I probably wouldn't have listened and that's one of the Mm. challenges um that's why I just say keep the dialogue open because um uh what would I say I often find this a really tricky one Mm. because, and I get, I actually get asked this question a lot Mm -hmm. and I take now, you know, coming through the other side, uh, a very big picture visionary viewpoint to my life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people would imagine that I'd be saying something like, don't get in the car or, you know, whatever. (laughs) But here's the thing. And this is going to see a little, seem a little bit um, unusual, maybe to some. So, I re- so I really like who I've become. I really love my life. I really love the relationship I have with my daughter, with my granddaughter, with my husband. I I love my work. I love the difference I'm making to the world, and I'm proud of that. And if I hadn't gone through that experience, I wouldn't be doing this. Absolutely. And and so to go back and say, you know, like, you know, don't do it or what, like this, this kind of prevention mm. thing for me personally, I'm OK with what I went through. Mm. Now, if you asked me that question, you know, like maybe a couple of years after I'd escaped, I would probably have said, don't get in the car. Don't go to McDonald's with him. (laughs) Yes, I think it's really from the perspective of where you are on your healing or recovery of that trauma really, isn't it? Because I know there may be some people listening and I've spoke quite openly, as I shared with Lisa, through my own journey of being the victim for many years, long after, you know, that the abuser had left this world and I was basically abusing myself by, you know, being power, powerless, you know, in that story. And it was only until I started saying, you know, you are not being abused any longer by anybody else. You're doing it to yourself. It's now time to start taking responsibility for your own life and not stay the victim because staying the victim, it was like being abused every day by yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful way of, of, 
of re of, you know of phrasing that that mm. every day you continue to experience yourself as a victim you it's as if you are being abused on a daily but you're, you're as you say you're abusing yourself so yes yeah, absolutely so and I know that. not everybody is at that stage you know there's many people listening and they're still suffering the trauma of it and it may not be sexual abuse as a child it may be domestic violence or emotional abuse or whatever they're going through right now they just can't see a way out but again, listen to Lisa's story because there is hope and happening to you at such a young age and being groomed and enchanted and lured and then being trafficked, which we're going to move into now and seeing you sitting here and surviving that and surviving it so beautifully, Lisa, where you're now sharing with others, that gives me hope for the future, it gives me hope for everybody that is caught, you know, in a situation where they feel completely trapped and powerless that there is a way out. Tell us about being trafficked from Australia to the UK. Now, you use the word trafficked and many people would think you were put in the back of a lorry and you were brought across borders without bread and water. Tell us about what your trafficking journey actually was. Yeah, so um, so uh, this is, again, another one of the myths that I, I um, you know, I like to to kind of bust really I like to bust myths now the idea that kids are grabbed and thrown into the back of a lorry and you know taken across borders it happens it does mm. happen but by far the majority of trafficking cases far outweigh though those um th that kind of experience by mm. far in a way the majority are where the child goes through what I call these four stages of grooming. So the first is luring, which we've covered. The second is enchantment. Now the next is um, is the coercion and manipulation. And this is where, so, so if I just go back a little moment to the yeah. enchantment. So in the enchantment, what happens there is the groomer, and the reason I've cl classified it as this is because I've worked with, with hundreds of people who have been post-extraction and we have to deprogram and reprogram. And so when we understand the process that they went through, then we can reverse it. Mm. So, so uh the the in in enchantment, one of the things that the groomer does is they drive a wedge. The reason I'm pointing my hand like this is they drive a wedge between you and everyone else. Mm. And the way they do that is they first of all they criticize your friends as being stupid and dumb and silly, but you're special. Mm. Right. So they kind of like stroke your ego, put your friends down. So then you kind of start to distance yourself from your friends. They tell your tell you that your parents don't love you. They don't care about you like I do. You're so special. You're so amazing. They don't appreciate your talents. They don't love you like I do. Again, the wedge is drawn through and they even start to pick, you know, like normally, you know, any normal teenager will have rows with their parents. And what the groomer will do is they'll side with the child and make the parents the enemy or the other teachers the enemy. And so the, the child is more and more isolated. Mm -hmm. So their, their entire um, self-esteem, self-worth and all of their, like the only trustworthy adult in their life becomes the groomer. And now we've slid into the manipulation coercion so that like there's no kind of hard and fast stop and start. So in manipulation and coercion, this happens more and more. Frequently at this point, the groomer starts to test the child, getting them to do something that's a little bit like and, and they don't, you know, go straight into let's have sex. It's like mm. a little kiss, a little peck on the cheek, a little kiss. Oh, let's, and then a little fumble and a fondle. And then it just like and it's on that slippery slope. Now, it, if at any point the child goes, hang on, I don't know about this, I'm not sure. 
the groomer will will blackmail them and and say things like, well, if you really loved me, you would. Classic blackmail. Um, and uh, I'll do something bad to myself if you don't. And also remember all that because in the enchantment phase, they're lavished with time, attention and treats and presents. And so, well, I did all those things for you. Now you owe me like this is, you know, so there's this kind of thing and how they do that, how brutal or that. I mean, my my groomer, he loved the passive aggressive. Mm. So he was like, well, you've had all that. I guess I don't get anything. And then it's like, no, 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 of course, of course, I'll do this for you. So that that passive aggressive thing and they'll they'll try lots of tactics. And then the one that works, they'll push that. So now you're in full on manipulation and coercion. Now, I was lucky in that I didn't get addicted to any substances, but frequently kids do. They get addicted to any kind, you know, any number of illegal and legal substances. And then the child is reliant on their groomer for their supply. Then we move into full on exploitation. And this is where that, you know, in order for the child to maintain the supply and the supply might be just love and attention, you know, love and approval from their groomer, that might be the supply. And if you shut off all other avenues of, you know, of connection and support from any other, any other human, you know, let alone adult, then that's that you, you know, the child is dependent and codependent on the groomer. So my experience was that he decided to go to the UK and uh, and I believe later on I found out that he was part of a larger ring and the whole school. There were a number of the this was happening in a number of um, with a number of teachers in the school. So he decided he was going to go to the UK. Wanted me to follow. Persuaded me to follow. And when I um, and the plan was he went at, like just after Christmas. And the plan was I was supposed to go at Easter, but I think he didn't trust me that I wasn't going to get ungroomed. And it was actually happening almost as soon as he left. Like I started seeing my friends again. I started to have more fun. And it's like, by this stage, I'm 14. And, uh, and I'm like, actually, this is okay. Actually, you know what? I'm preferring this. Mm-hmm. Like I haven't got the pressure of like, and the demands of always being there for him. Cause if I wasn't there for him all the time, he would have a little tantrum. So what he did was he then started to send letters saying that if I didn't come straight away, he was going to kill himself. Now, that's a massive burden for a 14 year old who has no structure mm. to to kind of ha- like, you know, the whole concept of emotional blackmail and being passive aggressive. Like those were terms. That, and to be honest, this is the 80s. They weren't even common terms then anyway. And and certainly I had no, you know, as a 14 year old, had no experience of them. So he was blackmailing me, uh, you know, there was this emotional blackmailing and doing this also to my mum. And my mum, she didn't just say, okay, you can go and live with him for the rest of your life. What she said was, you can go for six weeks. Mm-hmm. And in her mind, I think she thought that was a reasonable kind of um, compromise. And I guess, I mean, and she had to just hope that I would come home. I think she thought, and I like, we. I did speak to her at, at length after, you know, after you know, after the fact, mm-hmm. and she said she always regretted making that decision. But at the time, she had no idea what to do because she said, if he did kill himself or even try, I couldn't imagine what that would do to your sight, your you know, your mm-hmm. your soul, and I didn't want to because then you might then you know like you know basically my mum was saying then you might have blamed me. And and then you've got nothing. 
then you'd have nothing. At least here, physically you may be separate, but I know I can keep your soul safe. Did you ever, and maybe you've been asked this question before, did you ever blame your mother for allowing you to go? I didn't. I really didn't because I think there was a... Like, because we'd had the conversation, like we'd, had, like we'd, one of the things my mum did was, and these were always the conditions. And, you know, when anyone says like, what would you do? And, and a lot of people have like blamed, you know, have blamed my mum. Yeah. Like, what was she thinking? And like, I, well, actually she was thinking, oh my God, how did we get here? And now that we're here, how the heck do we get, like, where do we go that's safe? And there's, you know, remember, this is before Childline, for goodness sake. Yes. Like concept, you know? <laughs> like, yes, there wasn't the awareness that there, there is was now. No, there was zero awareness, zero awareness. And um, so so my mum sent me over. So, uh, she sent me to the, UK, uh, to the UK. And the when it came time for me to return, I was refusing to go. And that was actually the more pivotal point because up until then it was just a visit. And I was like, now I'm not going, I'm staying here. I'm living here with, with, with this man. And, and uh, at that point, my mum had to make a decision. And I think she thought, well, how can I physically get her onto the plane? Like, that's a hard thing to do. Like, you know, um, and again, before Childline, you know, but like the police probably wouldn't have really understood the whole concept of what the heck is going on here. Yeah. Um, it just wasn't a known thing. So I had a long, com- you know, I had, I've had a lot of uh, conversations with my mum. And, you know, she said, I thought the best thing to do was to leave you there, but maintain a connection with you. Mm. And she said, I knew whatever I did, it was the wrong decision. And I just tried to choose the least wrong. Mm. Did your abuser use that, you know, also going, well, now your mom doesn't want you back. You know, she's left you here. Did he use that? Uh, yes, he did. He used it as, a, oh, you, well, he did it in two ways. Because one of the other things that happens is they, although they start, although they love bomb you later on, they also start to do the full on sort of psychological abuse. Mm. And it was, no one else would have you. Even your parents didn't want you. Yeah. They're lucky to have me. So it wasn't so much that they blamed them for, um, you know, leaving, you know, sending me to live with him, more that they kind of blamed me for not being a good enough child that my parents didn't even want me. So yeah. that's kind of, and that's how the psychology kind of works as well. Yes. How did you feel? You know, I know you're the adult now looking back, remembering the feelings, but can you remember the feelings as that 14 year old, you know, even though you thought, oh, here I am, you know, with the man I love and he's an older man and he loves me. I'm in a different country. And did you feel free? Did you feel excited? Did you feel like it was an adventure or how did you feel, Lisa? So when I first got on the plane, it was the most amazing adventure and so exciting. And he picked me up at the airport and that was super exciting. And then he it turned out that he'd lied and he didn't have anywhere to live. And we were basically in one of these um, hostels for homeless people, which was really gross. Um, and, and so, so the, but, but at the time it was like, we were in this, you know, this love zone. Mm. So I kind of just didn't notice it. Then we did get a flat and I remember like to begin with, it was just really exciting and it was, you know, it was new, it was fun. We did different things. Um, 
And it was about, it wasn't until, I'm just trying to, trying to think, when was it? So it was after my mum had gone back to Australia. She'd come, you know, she'd come over. The, the idea had been she was going to, she, um, they, my parents ran an international business, so they traveled a lot. She was on a business trip. She was going to pick me up. We were going to have a bit of a tour, do some stuff, go home via the States, go to Disney World or Disneyland, one of those, and then fly on home to, to Australia, which is the long way around. Never went to Disney World. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, it was after she'd got, she'd left. And I remember that it wasn't long after she left thinking, oh shit, I am really stuck here now. Mm. And thinking, I'm not going to go home and see my friends. I'm not going to see my family. And I started, and we kind of got through the summer and because it wasn't long then by the time we went to, I, I started school. And my mum had said she can stay. So I feel like I'm rambling a bit, but I'm just kind of getting. No, you're grand. Yeah, you're okay. So so my mum said I could stay, but I had to go home for Christmas. And I remember going home for Christmas that year. And of course, Christmas in Australia is sunny, hot. We went to the beach. We had Barbies. I saw my friends again and it was amazing. And I remember counting down the days and thinking, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. Mm. And. I did go back and I remember kind of getting back and it was so cold and so dark. And I went to this horrible, rough, like really violent, proper, proper rough school in, in North London. Um, You know, there were, there were, you know, there was bullying and fights were rampant. Drugs were rampant. And I wasn't allowed to speak to anyone. I wasn't allowed to have any friends because my abuser was like, that was the, the kind of, you know, the rule that I wasn't to speak to anyone. And I remember coming home and he was out at work and just like coming home to this hideous cold flat and just feeling so lonely, mm-hmm. just so, so lonely. Oh, what so, age were you then? Was that a year on or six months on from when that you would won? have been almost, almost a year on? So I'd been with him yeah. almost a year. Um, so I moved to I came to the UK first two weeks after my 15th birthday so by then I was nearly 16 and I remember my 16th birthday was just like it was just I remember it was just so miserable it was just so miserable it was the excitement of the love and every the adventure was kind of going out of it what happened then so tell us then did he start did you start saying you wanted to go home or you wanted to leave was that coming into your thoughts yet he I remember once uh it wasn't long after that um he came home and I was crying and he walked in the room and I was crying and he screamed at me well what's the matter with you then like he was angry that I was crying and I just said you know I miss my mom I miss my home Mm. and I can't even remember the words he said but they weren't like they weren't pleasant and what I learned from that experience was it's not okay to ask to go home and uh so so I just I just locked it all up and I just went through the motions of like doing what he asked me to and and just like went through I became kind of quite an automaton the one thing I did do there was the one thing I was allowed to do which was I did my homework and I studied and I read and I read and I read and that's when I'd gone from being 
I pretty average to rubbish at school, not, not just because I couldn't be bothered. I wasn't interested mm. um, to being a really good student. And I ended up getting something like nine O levels wow. more than anyone else in the, in the school. I, even t- I took my, uh, I took my astronomy O level. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember that I just, I just signed up for my astronomy O level and, uh, but I didn't have a telescope, so I couldn't, I couldn't do the practical and, um, but I still got a B. <laughs> Well done, you. So I suppose that's what happens a lot of times as well. You see that with children, they put all their energy into something that they have control over because you don't have control over anything else, I suppose, really. Absolutely. That is absolutely it. I also saw, like I've always been in for, like I've always understood the long game. I kind of saw the only way I'm going to get out of this is I've got to get good grades, I've got to get an education. I've got to get a good job so I'm financially independent and then I'll be able to escape. Now, I'm thinking like that's a decade ahead, but that's what I was thinking. It turned out it wasn't a decade, but that was like that's the only way I'd get out. It was also this thing like because one of of his put downs was, oh, you're not as smart as me because I've got a degree and I know this and I know that you don't know anything. And of course, like, well, I didn't because I was 16. (laughs) I was a child. And I kind of, there was this always a, when I get to this age, Mm. when I get to this education, then I'll be his equal. Mm. Do you think there was a resilience within you? Um, I say sometimes we can't teach resilience, that we have to find our resilience through a challenge, you know. And I think a lot of children and young people, they're, you know, they haven't, I always said that I was giving a talk one time and somebody said, you're very resilient. And I said, I hadn't a clue what resilience was. I know now you know, I was resilient through it all. But again, there was no child line. There was no posters on, you know, buses. There was no television ads for child line or Samaritans. And, you know, I didn't know even the word or the term abuse. You know, it, it there just never came into my mind. So people say again, why didn't we speak up? Why didn't you? You know, for me, it became part of life, just like it did for you, Lisa. And that's very hard for anybody to understand, you know, if they haven't experienced it. But many of the things that you're even talking about, it sounds like even um, a narcissistic relationship, you know, that people have with somebody that's loving them and giving them everything and telling them how amazing they are. And then they're controlling their lives and saying, you know, that friend isn't good for you. Don't hang around with them or controlling how much money they spend. And it does, as I said, it doesn't have to be sexual abuse. It can be abuse of any place where they are coercing you, where they're starting to manipulate you, where they're starting to tell you that you can't live without them. You know, so that's a really important point. You don't have to be 12 or 14. This happens to women and men all over the world of all ages. So it's again, for me, there's so many little inspirational messages there, Lisa, is if you have any kind of a warning sign, you know, as an adult, because children may not always have the warning signs, but as an adult, if anything, Lisa has kind of hit you, you know, all of a sudden you go, oh, my God, that's my relationship. You know, maybe have a little think about that and go, you know, you are an adult, you have the choice, but you may need support to get out of it. So, Lisa, tell us about how you do I use the word escaped or do I use the word made a choice to leave for you? Yeah, so either is fine. And again, you know, there's this myth that that the way to get kids out is you swoop in and you rescue them and carry them off. And and one of the, you know, a lot of the work I, I've done um, 
it, it you know, in, in recent years and recent decades has, has been post-extraction recovery because one of the things that that keeps anyone locked in a relationship like this, it, and this happened, as you say, and I'm so glad you said this, at any age, there's complete control. And I, it was so funny. So one of the, like, not funny, ha-ha, but weird. It was a, one of the weirdest experiences so whenever I did something that he didn't like, he would do what he, what he would call the, the lock-in. So he would just, and it, it really ironic, he, so he would just shut me in the back bedroom and I was, he was told, he, I was told he didn't want to see me and I was to stay there and, you know, till I'd learnt my ways or whatever. So it's basically, you know, being sent to my room, but it wasn't even my room, it was just a room. And I remember being there and thinking, oh God, someone please get me out of this. This is awful. Somebody please rescue me. Because I just didn't know how to get out. Mm. And I remember hearing, like it was weird. I was like a sort of begging for somebody to come, please come, please come. And then I heard this voice, this kind of disembodied voice that came like, and it was like a bit like somebody shouting outside of a train window or a car window. Mm. And they said, the voice said as clear as day with this almost like a Doppler effect kind of going, no one is coming. Mm. And my first response was, oh God, that's it. I'm stuck here. But then my second response, and this is where I think your piece about resilience comes in, because Mm -hmm. then I thought, well, I am just going to stop waiting to be rescued. I'll have to get myself out. Yes. And that was the choice. Now, it did take me about another six months. Mm -hmm. Um, I spoke to my mom and I said, I think I want to leave. And this is, again, like message for parents, pay attention. The one thing, so all she said was, what do you need? Mm lovely what do you need there was no oh i told you so oh i know i've been waiting that there was because honestly if i like my terror was when i said i think i want to leave was that she would do that that was actually the thing that stopped me reaching out before was that i was afraid that she would do the kind of judging thing not that she was particularly judgy but i you know yeah she had her moments I suppose no one's perfect (laughs) and uh but you know that was my fear that I would have to kind of like oh you know she was going to do that oh I told you so and oh I've been you know oh I knew it wasn't going to last a little and it's like so she just said oh what what would you need and we worked together we worked out a plan and I was going to go and look for a flat and tell or a bed set as a you know um we had a conversation about whether I was going to go home to Australia or whether I was going to stay in the UK And at the time I framed it to my mum that I'd got into uni in the UK and I just wanted to carry on with my course. And I was making friends there, which was, which was key. But I think also it's like, I had no, not only did I have no friends in Australia by then, there was also this kind of like this shame of, oh, you got, you were the girl who got abducted. Mm. And I didn't want to go back to that. And I thought, and Melbourne's, it was a fairly small, you know, our community was a pretty tight knit community. And I thought, no, I'm going to stay here because I don't think I can face that. Yeah. And uh, we had to set up a separate bank account that he didn't have access to. And th- and this was all quite tricky because, you know, I had to do this without him knowing about any of it. So I set up a separate bank account. My mum transferred some money. I told, you know, she said, how much will you need? So I had to go and look at bedsits and flats as best I could. And I was, you know, at the time I was at uni and I spoke to my tutor and said, this is what I'm doing. Um, so, um, so I was basically doing all this stuff during the, you know, the, the uni day when he thought I was at uni Mm. and, um, and, uh, yeah. And I just, you know, my mum sent me the money, just, I just like not lavish amounts, but just enough to put a deposit down and, 
and then I moved out and my friend the one friend from my school uh who's uh, who's an Irish girl uh, Orla Murphy Orla Murphy is a, and her Fiat I think it was a Fiat Uno was it a Fiat Uno or a Fiat Panda I don't know it's a tiny <laughs> little Fiat it's amazing how much stuff you can get into a Fiat Panda and she schlepped me across London three times back and forth in her little Fiat Panda mm. and um she was my hero of the day because she just oh. he was out at work we cleared all my stuff out which granted wasn't and that wasn't much but wow um that so he didn't know you were leaving he didn't know you had done any of these things and he obviously arrives home and lisa is gone what happened i had I, no actually that, that's not strictly mm. true by the time i had my escape route and I and this is kind of a, a bit of a paradoxical thing. Like by the time I had my escape route and I'd made the decision, I did tell him it was only maybe like a week and a bit before mm. I was due to move, and it was scary to tell him. And I and he was furious and threw things, but it was like now I'd made the decision. He didn't have any power over me, mm. and I was like, I didn't like him having the tantrum, but it's like this is not about me. This, I don't care. I don't care. This is why I'm going. Mm. It's like the, the worse he behaved, which actually wasn't that bad. And weirdly, he started to love bomb me again, almost to try and get me to stay. And yeah. that was like there was a moment when he almost had me back. Mm. And 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 uh, but obviously I did leave. So um, mm. another important point there you said is that when somebody is, you know, trying to control you or being abusive towards you and when you do make that decision, you know, to leave, they will turn it around and they will be extra loving and apologetic and they'll want to do everything for you and they will change. They're only like that because they love you so much and, <laughs> you know, they're only doing that to protect you and do the best for you because you need it. You know, so of you course you won't cope on your own. Yes. However, How will you, you manage? Yes. <laughs> Heard it all, Lisa. Absolutely. And it is a frightening place to be, you know, when you've come from your home into a relationship with somebody and all of a sudden you're faced with being by yourself, you know, and how will you cope? You know, maybe you're not all as educated as Lisa and you're thinking, how am I going to support myself financially? And then you have to deal with all of the emotional and mental stuff that has been happening to you for years. And you want to go out into the world and be your own person. How does one learn to be their own person after being programmed for so many years, Lisa? Yeah, well, this is really how I came to create conscious emotional transformation and in terms of the recovery um from trauma so so this kind of grooming and abuse and whether you're in domestic you know domestic abuse or you know um or you know childhood sexual abuse it's it's what's frequently called uh, complex ptsd cptsd so ptsd tends to refer to like a single event or a single intense period, whereas CPTSD, it's more of a slow drip, 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 drip erosion of your self-esteem, your self-worth. So um, after I after I got out, and it took me a while to even get angry, I'll be honest with you, then I recognized, in fact, it even took me a while, a while to realize not everyone felt like this. And I would wake up and drag myself through the day and just not know how to cope or you know it was like I was literally waiting for the day to end so I could go back to 
to bed mm. and you know it wasn't for years later there was oh that's called depression <laughs> oh there was a name for that who knew <laughs> i just thought i had an energy problem i just thought i was a lazy ass <laughs> oh that's brilliant so, and it, <laughs> laughter is I've, i'm never laughing at someone with depression i'm laughing at myself for not knowing that it's called that just so we're all clear <laughs> And I love that because for years as well, through my own depression, I didn't know what it was called. And you're nearly relieved when there is a label for it, you know, that, oh, this is, I'm not just crazy. You know, there is, there is something called depression and maybe I am going through it. Yes, Lisa. Yes. And I remember um, I went to a, 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 some kind of a counselor or something. And I remember, you know, she was, we were just talking about the relationship and she said very quietly in the way that, you know, well-trained counsellors do, listening to my story and listening to my experience. And I was just, you know, ranting and raving about. And she said, hmm, you know, and she was talking about him and how he, you know, and she says, you know, it almost sounds like it was almost quite an abusive relationship. And I remember hearing those words and it's like, that would never have been the label. It's like, was it? (laughs) And again, this is, you know, when you're in the experience, and especially if it's been going on for a long time, you don't, you you have no benchmark. You have no, like, oh, this is how relationships are supposed to be, and this is not it. Mm. <laughs> and and you know, so when I kind of had that awareness, that was um that was quite extraordinary as well. So so one of the things about um conscious emotional transformation is that it clears it it does several things but um it clears trauma from the past in a matter of hours Mm. what other modalities might take years to achieve and it does that using this unique combination of psychological modalities like you're very classic so some of it looks very like coaching counseling Mm. nlp you know understanding and extracting the extracting the where the connections have gone wrong and then the other part looks is this more spiritual part. And this would look um, similar to the kind of things like Reiki, EFT, those kinds of energy transmuting processes. And it works like this. So we work on the basis that these are just the presuppositions. And I don't I'm like being an engineer. We're not into like, this is the truth. We're not, you know, it's not a cult. It's just like engineers, we like models. And yes. it's like we might use a scale model. We might use a mathematical model. You know, we might use a a, a computer model. But we know that the model is not the thing. So but so but we any model is based on some presuppositions. So or ideas. So we have these ideas in set. So one of them is that there's no such thing as a negative emotion. There's just resistance to love. Mm, So the idea is there's only one emotion and it's love that you're an infinite being. And the idea is that love should flow infinitely throughout your being. And then what happens is you have some kind of experience. And if you kind of imagine your being as like some or your nervous system as some sort of like network of, um, I know, energy channels or electrical circuits and whatever model works for you is fine. And the idea is love should just flow through you. And then what happens is you have some kind of inexperience that stops love flowing. So then what happens is you have so love tries to flow, hits the resistance, and that's what feels bad. And that's what we call a trigger. 
And the idea, like most people go, oh, I'm just going to avoid the triggers. And it's like, well, then you don't ever, like, then you end up with a shrunker and shrunker, a, a life that gets more and more shrunken. If that's a word, shrunken, I don't know. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'll make up words. I'm an engineer. I don't do words. So, so, so what happens with, um, uh, so a lot of, so, so the idea is you've got love trying to flow. There's some kind of break block resistance builds up on one side and is depleted on the other and your neurology your nervous system notices the difference so if we look at some kind of energy healing what an energy healing will do it will like build up the energy here and maybe knock it down here so they're nice and balanced and it's mm. like you're not like this anymore like oh nice and balanced problem is the resistance is still there mm. now what happens is you feel great and then after a while the resistance is still there so the imbalance comes back and that's why frequently with things like this, you need to go back, you know, anything from weekly, monthly, yearly, and and it will still come back and you'll still feel a bit triggered sometimes. Mm. The other modality looks at clearing the block, but it doesn't address the imbalance. And this is where we have to do things like process our emotions because we've got this imbalance and then we've got a kind of slowly years later, it might eventually equalize. <laughs> but it's really painful and takes a long time. Mm. And what SET does is we get you in, we find out where all the resistance is, which doesn't mean you need to know the story or relive it or anything like that. We just, we just literally just light it up with finding the triggers and we just get you to jot those down. You don't need to analyze them. You don't need to understand them. Then what we, so first set does is it finds where the resistance is. Then we remove the resistance. Then we repair the circuitry and then we flood the system with energy. So it's just flowing mm. and it's flowing and flowing. And then what, so what, and, and it's because of this unique combination of this incredibly high energy, which is higher than anything that I've experienced. And I call it the set intelligence uh, is the combination of that plus the removing the, removing the block, rebalancing the energy. Then the final piece, which is always the fun part, I always say, is we actually build new expanded connections so that you can be, do, and have more of what you want. And this in it, because the fifth principle of love that we that I talk about with the five principles, the fifth principle is that love seeks to grow. And this is our desire for life, for more love. So, so that's, that's, that. so to answer your question, that I believe is how we find who we are. I love that love seeks to grow. And I think that's a really important statement um, it just sounds amazing because, again, as a therapist and working with clients, and I know with a lot of people, they have their own resistance to, you know, fully recovering. And sometimes, and again, I think that we have to understand a lot of that. And I would always say that sometimes the soul chooses this journey for whatever reason, we may never understand it. And I have made peace in my life knowing that my soul knew I was resilient and strong enough to go through what I went through so that I could come out and learn and help other people you know that's I've made my peace maybe not everyone agrees with that but even for you Lisa on that spiritual level and you spoke about it earlier going you know if I had to go back to my 14 year old self and say you know don't go there you wouldn't because you wouldn't be here now 
because you had that experience and it taught you so much and developing this amazing conscious emotional transformation is just so powerful have you seen like have you seen great success with it with you know people that felt like there was nothing that would work for them they've gone everywhere they've tried everything for years and suddenly they come to you and it's like a miracle to them we have we have uh when we're still gathering the data so what we do is when whenever we do a set release uh we always get people to do a, a check in of their 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 um and it's just a, a self assessment of like just a um you know just an evaluation between 0 to 10 of what's the emotional charge before and after and we have a 96 percent of people have a reduction of at but so that it goes from anything so from above eight to to two between zero and two Amazing. and it's permanent now i will just give you this caveat there are some things set can't do you can only release what you're conscious of which is why you do sometimes you need several rounds of set as i call it um, because what typically happens is you release what you're conscious of now, and then your unconscious mind goes, Oh, by the way, got all this crap over here you might want to take a look at. And so the first thing people goes, I feel worse. It's like, that's okay, that's normal. Remember, I said this, this would happen. Get in for your second, and I know we normally book in two rounds, is what we do. Yeah. Um, so you can only release what you're conscious of, you can only release what you're willing to let go of. Now, mm. why people are not willing to let go of something is complex and it's because of something that we uh, that's frequently called secondary gain but it's just there's some positive byproduct that they have where they feel they can't let it go and there's no judgment and again that's why when we work deeply with a practitioner we can find another way so that people are willing to let that go but that's why we need to you know so that's why it's but and it's still only a matter of hours versus years um and it doesn't give you superpowers, uh, call, create telepathy. You can't levitate. You can't, you know, and none of that. So just be really clear. Will it make me taller? <laughs> no, I'm really, keep up with the high tech exercises. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose people are looking, you know, for me, if it is, if somebody has had resistance for so many years and they've tried everything. And again, another part you said is, again, consciously aware of something and unconsciously aware of they're two very different things. So if you've tried everything and you felt good for a while and then you go back to, you know, more of this resistance and feeling worse, again, don't be so hard on yourself. Maybe it is something that's unconscious to you and you're triggered without even being consciously aware of it. You know, I think for a lot of people, recovery and healing goes so much deeper than a lot of people know. And we can all do the surface stuff, you know, and for me, it's knowing what your emotions are, you know, how you're triggered and firstly being aware of that. So even if you weren't aware of where they all came from, but this is affecting me quite a lot, you know, that it's a start. So don't be too hard on yourself if you're not sure what your triggers are, but you're just feeling like you need help now. I love on your website, you give so much information, you have great blogs and everything, Lisa, you know, they're just amazing. But you also have assessments on your website for people to try out. Yeah, that's really, really good. So again, my listeners, one of the ways that we can empower ourselves, if you feel like you, well, I can't get to Lisa and how will I do this? And she's in the UK and I'm stuck in the arsehole of Galway or somewhere ever. <laughs> You know, how can I do this? Go and check out her website, you know, have a little bit of read into it, order her book. 
And if you can't do any of those things safely, if you can pop onto the website and look through the blog and look through the assessments when you have a few minutes safely, that you're empowering yourself just by making the choice to look into something that's going to help you, to support you, maybe to get you out of where you are right now. I always say everything starts with a choice in our own mind, just as Lisa's choice was, you know, this isn't good for me anymore. I want to leave. And she didn't leave straight away. She had to put things into place. So know that just making that choice, that conscious choice can start to shift things within you. And it's suddenly you'll start seeing there's avenues for you to get out. But you have to make that choice within you. Am I saying that right, Lisa? Perfectly, perfectly. Yeah. 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 And I think it comes from us realizing when something is really hurting us and it may take us years It may take us years and years, but when you feel something so bad inside of you for the person you're with or the person that they keep telling you they love you, but they're hurting you and you're feeling less and less of yourself. And I feel with Lisa, as a child, you lose so much of yourself. There's so much programming going on that the other person is telling you who you are. How did you find out who Lisa was? Or is, I should say. (laughs) I, well, that's again, another process that I learned. And, and I think it also, this is a big question because this presupposes that we are a thing that we're fixed. And I actually don't think that like me, like Lisa as a, as a person is a fixed thing who I am. So first of all, I have multiple, any, anyone, we all do, you know, we have multiple, multiple facets to our yes. being and who we are changes mm. and it should change because yes. this is how we grow. You know, it's like when anyone, you know, in, you know, when they ask you to do your bio and I say, well, oh, I don't know, spiritual teacher, trauma recovery expert, uh, knitter, painter, granny. Yes, you're everything. <laughs> <a> swimmer, mathematical <laughs> yes. modeler physicist you know (laughs) yeah so I think this who we are I think that's almost I don't know that that's a helpful question always I wonder if a better Mm. question is who do you want to be and are you moving towards that yeah that's lovely when did you realize then who you wanted to be or did you because even I feel like I didn't know who I wanted to be I had no idea who I was And even I didn't know who I wanted to be. I just knew I needed to be free to make my own decisions, even if I fell flat on my face, that nobody was telling me what I could and couldn't do, how to dress, how to look, how to speak, because I was going, if I continue to live like this, then I am losing whoever I am or whoever I'm supposed to be. And a bit like you, Lisa, I found out through my own healing you know, I was like, oh, I kind of like this person, you know, she's kind of nice and I like her being like this. And I'm still discovering, just as you said. So if you were to say the greatest discovery of Lisa as she is now, what would the greatest discovery be, Lisa? I think for me, it's my ability to to learn, to adapt to explain, to love, Mm. to share, like to share my knowledge, 
to and to accept and also to question, which I know there's some paradoxes in there. Yeah, it's like one of the things that that I do is I accept the world just as it is, and I question what like like and like like this is what I often say is like this is the classic engineering statement, which is, well, it's, yeah, it's kind of there must be a better way of doing this. It's like there must be a better way, like that. You know, like you know, engineers we're terrible meddlers. Don't leave us near anything that's not working <laughs> optimally because we'll have redesigned the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's that it's that ability to question there must be a better way of doing this and then experiment and I think you know what you were saying about even if you because I love that I love that about um when you said about even if I fall flat on my face because mm. of the three phrases that engineers use which is there must be a better way of doing this I wonder what will happen if I try this and then immediately followed often or very closely followed as soon as you do try it with like, oh, my goodness, I never thought that would happen. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought it would do that. <laughs> Turn it off. <laughs> my exact words is the laboratory was flooding. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Shut it down. <laughs> oh, you're brilliant. And I think just as you said there, you know, and again, maybe that comes from your background as well, but there must be a better way. And for you, you know, trying so many different therapies, counseling, all of the things that you tried, and you came up with a better way and a way that would help more people you know, the way that you had helped yourself. So I think that's lovely. So again, you know, one of the things I would say is nothing that we've ever done in our life is ever wasted. Even if you felt like that little job you had when you were 15, you know, and it was a waste of time and you're watching, you didn't make that much money. But I bet you there's some attributes in there that lend to who you became later on. And everything that I have done in my past, as I am looking at you, Lisa, it's like everything you've done, everything you've come through has now lent itself to who you are now and who you're becoming and I can only say Lisa you're an amazing lady and I am so grateful that you shared your story with us all today and with me Um, it's just amazing to see your transformation and that you're now helping other people to consciously transform as well so thank you so much Lisa thank you Sharon it's been my pleasure Beautiful. So everyone, you can check out Lisa's website, www.cetfreedom.com. Lisa's also on Facebook, Set Freedom, on Instagram, Set Freedom, LinkedIn, company, backslash Set Freedom. And please do check Dr. Lisa Turner out on TikTok because that's where I found her. <laughs> and I love it. We have an Irish program here. Maybe your friend Orla Murphy told you about called The Late Late Show. It's on a Friday night and it's a chat show. And they had small Irish businesses on it last week, um, Lisa. And a lot of the small entrepreneurs said their business has gone from five people to thousand people through TikTok. <laughs> I love it. I Isn't love that it. brilliant? It I just thought brilliant. Yeah. So there's positive attributes to everything. We don't want you stuck on social media every minute of the day. But if there is somebody like Lisa straight away, what she was saying really gripped my attention. And then I watched a little bit more and I said, I would love to hear this lady's story or more of her story because she shares so many beautiful tips on it. So you can check her out on TikTok as well and tell tell her I sent you on from the Sharon Fitzmaurice podcast. <laughs> so thank you everyone for listening again as i said please check out dr lisa turner setfreedom.com and 
If you want to contact her directly, please go through her website, check out her assessments, her blogs, and do let her know that you have found something that is maybe going to help you today or in the future. Share it with your friends and remember that love seeks to grow. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And I look forward to chatting to you all soon.